0: We're trying to conduct a serious scientific investigation.
1: Science, logic, reason. Do you have any
2: hard data? Now, that's what I call science. That's What I Call Science is proudly recorded in Tasmania at Edge Radio you're listening to That's What I Call Science. We try and bring you interesting content on science, technology, engineering and maths and this episode is part of our mini-series for National Science Week 2020 on misinformation, something I'm sure is at the forefront of all of our minds at the moment. Before we kick into the content of the episode, I would like to start today's show by acknowledging the traditional owners of the land on which we are gathering today, even though we are doing it with some virtual guests and we're in the studio. I'd just like to acknowledge that all of us are in Tasmania, so we're in Witta land, Aboriginal land, sea and waterways, even though we're meeting online. And I acknowledge with deep respect the traditional owners of this land, the Palawa people. On behalf of everyone, I'd like to pay my respects to elders past and present um, as the Aboriginal community continue to care for country. And I would like to acknowledge that the land and sovereignty were never ceded and that the Aboriginal community in Tasmania continues to fight racial and social discrimination every day. So, This is part of a three-part series that we're tackling misinformation during Science Week. And I'm joined in the studio with Meredith Castles, my co-host and our expert in tech. So Meredith, do you want to give a bit more information about what we're covering
0: today? Sure. Um, so we're going to be talking tech-related misinformation. And by that, it is the misinformation on tech and using tech and where tech might be the portal <laughs> for um, pushing some of the, the false information out there onto people. Um, we're going to be talking to some psychology researchers from the University of Tasmania, who are well, at least one is actually directly researching this uh, particular topic on misinformation and how social media can influence people, which is especially important right now where we're isolated and using social media and, and tech a little bit more as as the data tells us. We're going to explore how tech plays that vital role in the spread of the misinformation. So
2: I suppose this is probably a good point to acknowledge that when talking about misinformation or sensitive topics that there may be some distressing content um, throughout the episode. So just be mindful of that. And if you need any support, the content or the details for Lifeline are available at the end of the episode.
0: Excellent. So we've got Dr. Emily Lowe-Calverley on the line who has previously been a guest with us talking about the science of social media likes on a previous episode. And she's also joined by PhD student Muriel Charles or Mel as she likes to be called and will be called for the rest of the episode. Hi guys, how are you going? Great,
1: right, thank you. Thank you so much for
0: having us. No worries, Fantastic. So with the COVID lockdowns recently, the data tells us that people have been using tech devices and social media more often. Um, Are we actually also seeing an increase in false information making the rounds out there? Emily, what do you reckon?
1: Yeah, that's correct. So straight away back in March, um, when all of this kicked off, Facebook really saw a big spike in usage in countries that were hit early by the virus. And particularly there was huge increases in things like um, use of messaging and time spent in group phone calls, as we can all attest to. Um, from all the Zoom that we're using at the moment. And the data suggests that people really flock to social media as an important resource during this time. And we've seen it become a real hub for two key things like social connection and also information. This is great. Like, I'm sure you guys have all seen um, some of the expert videos that are circulating, things like um, people educating others on how to correctly wash your hands. Um, It's also been a really great source of news. So if you're anything like me, you've been using social media to stay up to date with statistics on local cases, Um, and also to stay up to date with the various stages of restrictions and what we're able to do. But of course, um, where people are disseminating and seeking information the way we are, one key concern is going to be whether the information that we're finding is true or false. And there are real concerns about managing misinformation during this time, particularly when on social media, we know that information can spread and become viral so quickly, whether it be correct or incorrect.
0: Social media, as, as you've mentioned, and we know has been a delivery system for breaking news and stats, and the stats state that, in Australia at least, a, a really large percentage of people, they do turn to social media first for their news um, now, which is different to about five, six years ago. So what does that actually mean uh, for the spread of false information?
1: Well, we all know how virally information can spread on social media. So the same is true for misinformation. Where people are liking and sharing stuff, the information is just going to proliferate. And people might believe this information because we do tend to like to have nice causal explanations for the world, for everything that's going on, especially when we encounter unusual events. We're also bombarded with a 24-hour information cycle and we don't have the time or cognitive capacity to carefully process all of the information that we're encountering all the time. So what this means is that there's also less likelihood of us comprehensively appraising the information that we're consuming. And this might play a role in why people share, continue to share and spread misinformation. So there's some recent research that actually speaks to this. Um, some research has found that often people actually just simply fail to consider how accurate information is when they're deciding what to share. So you can see how this would work if, you know, you're encountering something on social media and you don't take the time to carefully appraise its accuracy and you hit share. Suddenly incorrect information can have a really far reach and once it's out there it could potentially then influence people's behaviours if they're believing what they read. Now the good news is the same research found that by prompting people to think about the accuracy of what they were reading, their choices around sharing of that information could be improved. So we do know that um, at least early evidence suggests that little accuracy nudges um, which would be quite easily implemented may be useful in reducing the spread of misinformation.
2: So an example of this is, I think during the pandemic, Twitter, didn't they start prompting if you shared something without actually having clicked on the article, that they would ask you whether or not you wanted to, to read the article, which I think is a good example of just adding that second layer, um, or that just that little question that normally happens when you have that interpersonal contact that doesn't actually happen when
0: you're just on your own reading. Absolutely. Yeah, um, Twitter, Twitter was um, probably leading in this. Um, it does. Back the question on some of the um, accuracy out there, whether it's actually by people, whether it's by the technology behind it. Um, the, without naming companies, there <laughs> there were a couple of companies that developed um, AI specifically for this reason to yeah, right. um, spread misinformation. Um, so they would uh, the AI was trained to be able to talk and and write without being um, able to be seen as. A machine so it was developed in in natural language processing so it was developed on on being able to mimic a human um and that the job of that was to spread the misinformation and now we're actually employing ai to do the exact opposite of debunking (laughs) the ai
2: That's funny. So, Emily, I wonder, could I ask you, essentially, that kind of sounded to me like when you're online, you're bombarded and constantly kind of overwhelmed with information, which then over time degrades your ability to process, comprehend and critique that information. So if you consider somebody who maybe doesn't have very high critical thinking skills or literacy skills anyway, are we essentially just creating an environment where we're constantly losing our ability to discern the credibility of information.
1: Yeah, like absolutely. I mean, there's so much, as I said, information out there that we just don't have the um, the ability to critique it and appraise it and, you know, process all of it to the extent that we probably need to process it to determine what we should be using to guide our behaviours and what we shouldn't. And the other problem is the more repeatedly we hear misinformation or myths, the more likely we are to believe them. And on social media, it's very common to just see so much information, you know, come out and then be repeated and then be shared and then all of a sudden it's everywhere. So, um, yeah, there can be a real bombardment of both correct information and misinformation which makes it hard for anyone to sort through what they should be following and using to to make the decisions about their own behaviours whether that be You know, health behaviours or political choices or whatever it might be.
0: Fantastic. Mel, can you just tell us a brief bit about your research and how this ties into this because um, it's fantastic to hear about a psychology researcher looking at this sort of thing in misinformation in tech. There's a particular part of this that I would like you to touch on in terms of what we call the liar's dividend. Yes.
3: Okay. So my research really is focused on manipulated visual media. So that includes Uh, doctored videos, doctored photos, but also misidentified photos. So they're real photos that have been taken out of context. So they are absolutely prolific because they're easy for somebody to strip a, uh, a photo off the internet and claim that this is a photo depicting an event that it actually doesn't. So. For example, uh, leading up into the 2016 US election, there were a lot of photographs going around about these um, uh, migrant caravan coming up that apparently was violent and attacking uh, border force. But actually, most of these photos were from different places across the world. They might have been of refugee camps or uprising in the Ukraine. So you can imagine how much those kind of photos feed into certain narratives that might be um, thrown out there with a certain motivation because there's an agenda. These kind of images have been kind of largely ignored. We've been looking at a lot of written content but actually we process images um, in a different way than we do written text. We process them really easily. Uh, a lot of information is contained in a photo and we tend to think photos are a accurate depiction of a real event. And they are. They're compelling evidence that something occurred and we actually do need to believe in the images that we see. And that sort of brings us onto this area that if we can't trust what we see and hear then it makes it easy for people that are doing the wrong thing to claim that truth was actually the fake so in the lies dividend when anything can be fake it makes it easier for the guilty to dismiss the truth as a fake bad actors can get away with their actions by exploiting our widespread cynicism I've simple little example of this is Trump with the access Hollywood tapes you probably remember that um, he was caught on tape saying some pretty uh, sort of lewd comments after that he was he he did say that yes it was me uh, it was locker room talk but it was only a few weeks later that he was saying oh, that's you know, I don't think that's what I said and that's because he can play to our understanding that things can be manipulated. So this is not really a massive, dramatic example, but you can imagine that if a government is denying, for example, the bombing of a hospital despite having video proof that this was just a fake, then that can really uh, cause a lot of confusion. And I think that's a really important point with misinformation is that it's not always this is true and this is false. Actually, a lot of it is just misleading. And that's where it becomes a little bit hard to disentangle. We want people to be able to trust what they see and what they hear. So the more that we inform people about fakes and we have the rise of things like deep fakes, then the more people will mistrust what they see and hear. And we don't want to move into some sort of dystopian, post-truth world where we just are in a state of
2: constant confusion. You're listening to That's What I Call Science, and we're talking about misinformation. Stay with us in just a moment. We'll be talking a little bit more about this concept of trust and how tech exacerbates misinformation. My name's Neve Chapman. I'm joined with Meredith Castles and our expert guests, Dr. Emily Lowe-Cavalry and Mel Charles.
0: You're listening to That's What I Call Science. My name is Meredith and I'm joined by my co-host, Neve. And today we're talking with two experts in the psychology of misinformation in social media, Dr. Emily Low calverley and Mel Charles. And just before our break, we did touch on Mel's research uh, in visual identification and the Liars Dividend. And we're just going to just expand on that a little bit, Mel, if that's okay. Why is this type of research especially important in the COVID-specific times?
3: Uh well, there's just so much misinformation out there at the moment, and it can be so damaging because if you think about what we believe actually changes our behaviour, it changes who we vote for, it changes whether we are going to vaccinate our children, how we participate in the democratic process of voting so these kind of times in, say, COVID, everyone's anxiety is quite elevated. We're worried about our own welfare, our health. We're worried about jobs. We're worried about our community. And when people feel anxious, they actually do go out searching for information to sort of quell that uh, feeling that uh, arising and if there's a lot of misinformation out there it increases the chances that you're going to come across it. You've also got to consider a lot of this information at this time moves fast so there were uh, claims say for example about wearing of the mask you don't need to do it and now we come across information Yes, it is a good way to prevent the disease from spreading. So that's not actually um, misinformation a lot of the time. It's actually just information changing and we have to update our beliefs. So that's why it's so important to keep the information coming in. We don't want to get into the situation where we're censoring too much information out. But we need to be able to update that And we need to be able to evaluate that information about is there an agenda behind this? information.
0: Absolutely. And just on that topic, in terms of trust, we mentioned trust us before in the previous um, section and how people are able to uh, work out how to trust or whether they can evaluate whether something is accurate or not on social media. But that includes in these COVID times, we're talking about the we're home more often. We've got devices, most of us at least, have devices on, whether they're phones, um, smart devices like the Google Home or the, uh, the Apple HomePod or something like that. Before, even before the COVID times, there was the concern about um, these devices always. Being on, always listening, Um, and then the recommender systems where suddenly you might be talking about something and then you go into Facebook and suddenly you'll get an ad or something on these particular topics. So In terms of trust, in terms of technology as well, so uh, you talked about the fact that we don't want to stop the inflow of information either, because if you censor too much of it, then um, it can have an opposite effect. But with our declining trust in technology as well, um, do you think that we are going to have more of a lack of trust, which means less information going into the systems? The
3: most effective misinformation is information that has a kernel of truth in it. And we are definitely... Um, we're definitely going to find it increasingly difficult to disentangle the truth from reality and we're going to have to keep the information going. We don't want when people look up about information about COVID for them just to come across uh, the misinformation about um, it being related to 5G technology or... Uh, related to some sort of agenda from Big Pharma.
2: I think that's a really interesting point, um, particularly because where then do we stop and become a, a nanny state? And how do we, particularly something, I think COVID is an excellent excellent case example of those of us who work in research are particularly attuned to the fact that what we once knew may be disproved and uh, we have to adjust our thinking with new information and when you have something like a novel virus your information is extremely limited so you know we saw the mask is an example of this we saw at the start people being like well there's no real rationale to wear a mask there's no evidence to support it but I personally would have sat on that well there's no evidence against it either and it's a really minor inconvenience and if it worked for previous um, viral to restrict viral transmission of infections it worked previously so why wouldn't it work now isn't it likely to just reduce harms like I would have erred on the side of let's give out advice that's going to minimize harms. so then if we get evidence that indicates it is actually effective we're already in that good behavior mode whereas now we have this whole adoption thing about taking something and people are confused because well you know three months ago you were saying I didn't need to wear a mask why do I need to wear a mask now and I think it becomes this really interesting dilemma of like how do we be upfront and honest and not be policing things, but then also, you know, where do we draw the line of becoming a nanny state and policing things, or but actually
0: giving people accurate and safe information? That was kind of interesting, Nivia. We've got uh, so many uh, AI algorithms running our social medias. We know from the tech side of things that the more interactions a post gets, whether it's likes, loves, whatever, the more often it's shown and the earlier it's shown in people's lists. So AI behind a lot of this um, decision making in um, social media is it, it's an interesting thing about how much of it's the human side and how much of it's the, uh, the tech side as to whether we can trust what we see and whether something's actually popular.
2: So if they're basing that it's kind of like up liking things mm. like there's lots of like I think Reddit you upvote things and then you see based on things of like how much upvotes it's had. Exactly. Um, I don't even use Reddit so I'm very really proud of myself for understanding that <laughs> <laughs> but I I wonder, like, how much is that based on your information preferences anyway? So if I'm only going down the rabbit hole of I want to see conspiracy theories and things about 5G causing coronavirus, does that mean I'm going to see the most liked posts of that type of topic? And how much of that is a computer creating an echo chamber?
0: Very much so. Um, Yeah, it's listening to you. It's learning from you. Um, Your your tech is learning from you, everything you do. So, um, yes, your behavior is being tracked um, doesn't it's not as scary as it sounds. it is normally for a good purpose. Um, but it can be quite creepy. So yes, you are creating an echo chamber um, around what you are particularly interested in, um, which does unfortunately have the the problem of um, discounting some of the things you may find interesting.
2: But it also has the problem of not giving you an alternative narrative. So like if we think about traditional media, be that the news on the TV, like we all used to watch after, I'm assuming, after our six o'clock dinner, we'd sit down as a family before watching <laughs> Home and Away and we'd watch the news. Our... And you would see the alternative perspective. And I mean, somebody is editorializing that content. And it's the same with a newspaper. If you pick up a newspaper, you're going to see some things that you're drawn to, but it's likely you're going to read the whole thing. Whereas with social media, yes, it's, it's adapting based on your preferences. But, you know, all of us learn and grow and over time based on what we're exposed to. So how much of it is it actually just shaping us towards
0: a predetermined interest? And we're kind of lacking that alternative narrative. Absolutely. Um, I would say very close to 100% <laughs> um, and sometimes unintentionally. So yes, it's great for advertisers to you know, to leverage this, to be able to show you and make you buy things and that sort of thing. Um, but in general, it, the tech is not designed from the point of view of, of making you what we call, it's called a filter bubble. The tech is not actually trying to put you in a particular little bubble. It's just the effect it has. So it means that you can actually get out of your own filter bubble. That's It, it, it comes down to whether or not, how much you're driven by tech. So how much you're actually driven by what you want to see and how much you keep at the forefront of your mind that you are only seeing the limitations of the tech is actually what you're seeing. Yeah, that's really... I wonder, Emily, if I could put you on the spot a little bit. In terms of psychology,
2: psychological development, decision making, if you like, in your work, what effect does this have on our psychological maturity in young people only seeing what other certain things that they're exposed to, or adults, or how polarizing is it that we only see what the tech wants to show us? Well, I
1: suppose it kind of um, it links it really nicely with what we term the confirmation virus bias. So people already tend to believe information that aligns with their pre-existing beliefs and they also have the tendency to ignore information that contradicts these beliefs. you can see that um, there's already a risk that people will keep following the kind of information that um, aligns with what they already think. And if the tech is also kind of automatically doing this for them, it does uh, it does increase this risk of having a whole lot of information that just you know champions one side of the story and not a lot of information that contradicts beliefs and allows people to maybe think more critically about things.
2: That's really interesting. So stay with us and in just a moment we'll be talking about the next steps of misinformation, the future of tech influenced information.
0: If you're listening to That's What I Call Science, my name is Meredith and I'm joined by my co-host Neve. and we've been talking with two experts in the psychology of misinformation in social media, Dr Emily Low Calverly and Mel Charles from the University of Tasmania. It's about some of the ways technology has played a role in the spread of misinformation and we're about to have a look at what this all means for the future as we moved in, move into a more unprecedented new era as the world revives after COVID.
2: Yeah, it's been a really interesting show so far, Meredith, and I've really loved having your tech expertise and the psychology perspective from our guests. Um, I find it really interesting what you were talking about with that, the ability to filter or to fight the filters, as I want to say, and to stick with that theme. I wonder, Emily, could you fill us in on what are some of the things that people need to do to arm themselves against harmful information?
1: So if we think about how social media operates, there are a few really practical things that
2: people can do. Um, And it
1: really is basic. It starts with being aware that misinformation is a thing and that people will encounter posts on social media that are either untrue or might be kind of spun in a way that doesn't quite accurately represent the situation. So from there, I'd say it's important to firstly take note of where your news is coming from. Who is the original source? Are they reliable? Because there is a lot of reliable and helpful information out there on social media. And social media is such a brilliant tool for getting that information out there and you know, people can reach it really accurately, uh, really easily, and people can share it really easily as well. So, this checking also includes checking the sources within an article. So, people need to think about where um, sources are getting their information from. Are they expert sources whose information can be relied upon? It's really important. Also, don't rely on just one source of information. So, people should try and gather their facts, facts from a range of places and check if they're, you know, if they're giving you the same or different information to what you've seen. So this really speaks to what Meredith was talking about before about you know, being able to get into that cycle of only seeing the same things on social media because of algorithms. So it's important to you know, seek out information that differs from the stuff that you're seeing all the time. Probably the last thing that I would add to that is that it's so important to always read the full story. So on social media, headlines can be so misleading. And even a really solid story with a misleading headline can arm people with misinformation. So people need to be aware that uh, headlines are designed to be clickbait. They're content that is designed to attract people's attention and get people to, you know, stop and look and listen and maybe click through to a full story or page. So in that way, they're often the most controversial or interesting part or surprising part of the story. But if you click through, you might find that the headline seems to imply something totally different when removed from the context of the full story. So always read the full story. Arm yourself with as much information as you can to try and piece together what is accurate and what is not
0: accurate. Absolutely. Um, Just uh, that... that rings so true with what I tell my students is called the Wikipedia effect. <laughs> um, but yeah, Always read the sources at the bottom, guys. Um, <laughs> but in terms of the tech, it goes really well in what Emily was saying is the fact that, yes, in terms of, of information, be critical and be open to other um, sources of information. But the same with the tech. Distrusting tech that might be listening to you, all that sort of thing, it's something that people get very, very head up about. And it's something that you shouldn't need to get too head up about. Um, it's not something to stress about, um, especially in this these COVID times. There's more important things to stress about. Um, but yes, there's, there's definitely things that you can do, which is um, just arm yourself with information about the tech as well.
2: You've been listening to That's What I Call Science, and we love bringing you science-related content. We hope you enjoyed the show. If you loved it, please get in touch with us, even if you didn't actually, we'd love the feedback, on social media. So by searching That's What I Call Science, or That's Science Test has on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. If you or someone you know is struggling, there are a number of resources we encourage you to access, including Lifeline on 13 11 14, or visit Beyond Blue and Headspace websites for help. My name is Neve Chapman. I'd like to thank my co-host, Meredith Castles, for producing this show and our expert guests, Dr. Emily Lowe-Calvary and Mel Charles from the University of Tasmania. So please like, share, and get involved with this mini-series that we're bringing you. Next, The next one in the series is a panel of young people talking about misinformation and how that shapes the way that they discern and share content. You've been listening to That's What I Call Science, brought to your station and across the nation via the Community Radio Network. You can find That's What I Call Science on all major podcast streaming services and social media platforms. Like and subscribe for on-demand science updates from the team. That's What I Call Science is proudly recorded in Tasmania at Edge Radio. Head to edgeradio.org.au for more information on how you can support community radio. Gemmaker are a proud sponsor of That's What I Call Science. Gemmaker provide expert advice, services and training to commercialise new knowledge and technologies. Go to gemmaker.com.au for more information.